Hi, everyone. We're going to continue now today our conversation that we started with our last episode with the very distinguished Theta Scotch Paul, the renowned sociologist whose recent research has really been a deep dive into the intersection of social policy and civic engagement in American democracy. She's had fascinating insights into the motivations and the dynamics behind right-wing Tea Party organizing that led up to Trump in power. And now the grassroots movement coming from the left, not only to resist Trump, but now to create a new politics from the left in this country. And the first voice you hear will be that of Doraka. Hi, Dr. Scotchpole, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. This is a real treat for me, um, you know, as an activist and as a student or thinker analyst of the Democratic Party, your work has been incredibly influential and useful. And one of the questions I have is that there seems to be a, a, a kind of red thread through a, a bunch of your work, starting, you know, a little earlier than the Tea Party stuff, but with uh, work than, and, and commentary you made about the Occupy movement then your analysis of the Tea Party, and then all the way through to um, your recent piece on, on Indivisible, that a difference between the right and the left seems to be the ambivalence about the major parties. <laughs> and that while, you know, the, the Tea Party right away, as you documented, like in its first, the first gatherings under that brand, we're talking about how do we take over the Republican Party? In contrast, the the Occupy movement was like having a hundred year old debate about whether electoral politics should work or, or should be uh, uh, part of the struggle, et cetera. And then all the way through to really, your really insightful work on Indivisible, which really, by the way, very much dovetailed with my own anecdotal experience of Indivisible here in California, um, that it seems like on the grassroots level, a lot of activists were like, hey, we should be involved in the party, in the Democratic Party. We should get engaged in the Democratic Party. But the leadership in Washington had a very much more uh, nonprofit industrial complex kind of outlook uh, and so forth. A big touchstone for me has been, you know, watching what happened uh, in and contrasting the Dean insurgency within the party to the Obama campaign, use a lot of the same methods, and they did. similar rhetoric, but one really targeting, you know, saying let's rebuild and reimagine the democratic party and the Obama campaign, and OFA being like, let's ignore it, let it die, do our own thing. So, you know, to me, in addition to bringing the state back into our thinking about, uh, you know, sort of a macro historical forces, it seems that you've been an important voice for bringing the party back in to thinking about how these networked uh, organizations try to try to find effectiveness and so forth in politics. And I'm wondering if you could, I mean, am I silly for reading that thread through your work, or do you? Is there some more you'd like to? talk about it? Well, not at all. I mean, I, well, let me back up and say political parties have not been studied very much by scholars, including in political science, shockingly enough. Yep. Um, there are, the way people define political parties is usually by the voters who vote for them, which is, you know, kind of misses the point, or the legislators who align with them in organizing Congress or a state legislature. Those are both important but parties as organizations and what it is they do and who they connect to and how, that's sort of passed out of fashion. Mm -hmm. And so part 
research I've been doing and that has come front and center in this Tea Party and this resistance work has been to be aware of parties as local and state organizations. Now, you know, they are there even if they're hollow shells or even if they've been taken over by insiders who are corrupting them. So um, they're there because of the way in which our electoral system works, that it just, and the legal system just assigns certain things to them. Not the same in every state, by the way, and it matters what the rules are. Very much. um, The thing that's so striking to me is that both the Tea Party and the anti-Trump resistance carried forward a principle that I actually learned in my work on revolutions, which couldn't be further away, which is that social change and political change often comes from intertwined networks that parallel one another. Um, That's a structural point. It's not a... You know, it's not a point about the content, um, but a reform movement that is both organized separately from, say, the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, but willing to interact with it and to some degree colonize it, um, can be a very powerful engine for revitalization and change. There is absolutely no question that Tea Party people did that. Uh, and sometimes self-consciously, they would... I remember being at a meeting where they were reading up on the local Republican Party rules, and then they just descended the meeting one night and kicked out the business people. And they are the kinds of people that we see now. I mean, they're the ones with the colorful costumes and the crude language, and uh, they were Trumpers before Trump. Uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, now, I, I think that the local resistance, not national resistance, but the local resistance is usually full of people who are prepared to deal with their local Democratic Party. Now, I say deal with. Sometimes it's a hostile standoff. And, and, you know, some of these groups, especially in the first year, told us in the questionnaires we sent out, they don't even want to pay any attention to us or they don't like us. And, And not liking us was for sure, because a lot of times it was groups of men who felt very put off by these, uh, you know, teachers and librarians who were telling them what to do. Um, or they could even be women. I mean, in one Ohio county, it was a woman who, good woman in many ways, but she couldn't understand what these new resistors were doing and why would why couldn't they just come to her meetings and, and not organize separately. But that evolved, and I would say it evolved across, but we have that chapter about Pennsylvania where we looked at all the variants of this. And in most places over the course of fighting for the wins in 2018, often wins by more moderate people than the resistors themselves might have wanted to win, uh, or fighting to lose, for that matter, because in most Pennsylvania counties, they lose. Um they got to know Democratic candidates and they ran for Democratic committee positions. In some cases, took over the Democratic committees entirely, more often created a presence that then interacted with the other constituencies that were already there. That can bubble up to the state level and I believe it has in some states, not all, but it's the process that's ongoing. That is really good for the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party just didn't have a there there in many of these local areas, especially once the unions went into decline and once the attacks 
and the public sector unions, the teachers unions, proved to be so successful. Uh, I mean, I'll just give one example. In one of the Wisconsin counties I visited, the first visit, the local chair, two women revitalizing the local Democratic Party told me that after Scott Walker succeeded in breaking the powers of the teachers unions in Wisconsin, people were so discouraged that they dropped out of politics. Nobody came to Democratic Party meetings anymore. They couldn't get volunteers. People moved out of the state in many cases. So complete was the defeat after the Walker union busting, the failed attempt to roll that back. But then they said Trump got elected and suddenly the meetings were full. So, and this, they overlapped with the people, but weren't exactly the same as the people going to the local resistance group meetings. And they were all aware of that. They found a way to cooperate without collapsing one into the other. Right. But many of the teachers who had dropped out before reappeared as members of the resistance groups. In fact, Alex Hurdle Fernandez, my student and colleague, has found in systematic research that unionized, non-unionized, and formally unionized teachers are often mainstays of the creation of these local groups. That's what you would expect. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you know, my reading of the the history of the Democratic Party in the last you know half century or so, right, is that what you describe is is actually the norm of you know collapse or going into like abeyance and then a new group of volunteer activists come and revitalize it. And that, you know, since the decline of the machines and the far more like uh, you know operational, rational um, models of the party structure, it's been people that are engaged on the issues or engaged in because they want social change. And that is a very cyclical boom and bust kind of, you know, social ecology. Um, but what I've also seen is that very often people get, you know, that, that takeover moment, activists will come in, get power in a, in a defunct or otherwise sleepy democratic organization. And then they have quote unquote control over it. And then it's like, well, now what? And how do we, what do we do with this thing? Because the Democratic Party is so diffuse and, and power works in such, uh, you know, in some ways, secretive ways within it. And so another piece of your work that I'd like you to talk about um, recently, right, is this is setting up the Scholar Strategy Network and doing work that um, can be digestible and uh, useful for the work of practitioners in addition to um, other analysts and academics. And a very specific piece uh, that the SSN came out with, which is a set of uh, suggestions for the revitalization of local party organizations. You know, I I'm like, hey, I could take this and give this to a newly elected party chair activist that just took power in wherever, you know, Siskiyou County or Nevada County or something and give this to them. And it would actually be really helpful um, because the party itself doesn't do any onboarding or training or anything, right? No, they don't. They don't. So, so they tell don't. me about SSN and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. Okay, well, SSN, of course, has been around for a while. It got going back in 2009 when a group of um, mainly social scientists, sociologists, political scientists, 
and a couple of donors. We have, we've always had a couple of wealthy donors who are full participants, by the way. They're, um, we just decided that something needed to be done to build bridges between the hyper-specialized worlds of academia and the increasingly separate worlds of policymaking and even movement politics for that matter. And we didn't know what to do, frankly. It took us several years to discover some formats, some organizational ideas and some, and the idea of asking people to write a brief that boils down their work into two pages of plain English. It turns out that even a thousand page book, even a highly statistical study, even God help us a postmodern study can be translated into everyday language uh, if you work hard enough at it. So we built from that insight and asked people to commit not to a partisan position, not to policy agreement with a thousand other people. Imagine the meeting. That would be too much of leftist politics, by the way, is about that. <laughs> we didn't yeah. even ask whether people are leftists. I mean, the fact is academics tend to be, but Agreed. The, the, the commitment you make by joining SSN, by producing a piece of writing or a way to communicate your everything from ancient history or philosophy to contemporary studies of politics to contemporary policy relevant work. The commitment you make is to the progressive era Jane Adams type idea that we as academics have a calling. You hear the religious word I'm using. To what share, else is there? <laughs> to share our work with our fellow citizens, with in the media, policymakers, civic groups. For example, voting research was shared very early on with the League of Women Voters. Hmm. League of Women Voters invited people to their conventions to present some of these ideas, and that had a galvanizing impact on both the scholars who were invited and the League of Women Voters itself. So the additional thing comes out of my work about federation. We decided very early on that we would devote a chunk of our researchers, resources, a major chunk of our resources to giving predictable small budgets to chapters. Chapters can form in a metro area. They can form for a whole state. For example, Oklahoma has one, Alabama has one. They can form... Um, for regions of states, um, they work differently in different settings, and their volunteer leaders get a small honorarium, uh, and really quite small, for the work they do, and they then decide what kinds of outreach they want to do to legislators or civic groups in their area. And it's very different in very different part in different parts of the country. It's not the same in Utah as it is in San Francisco, you know. So that is the other part. And we now have about 40 of those chapters. Um, it's still growing and it adjusts its overall sense of what we want to emphasize according to how the political opportunity structure changes. When Trump was elected, we, we, we picked a series of priorities that included state level action, sure. but it's still possible for each group or each member to have 
our small staff help them with whatever outreach they want to do. So that's the philosophy. And does it relate? We have task forces and a group of us who were interested in political parties as organizations set up the task force on what it takes to have a vibrant and effective political party, wrote that piece that you saw. By the way, in a nonpartisan way, you see that it is not framed in partisan terms. The first party to circulate it was the Republican Party of Wisconsin. They were more interested, they were more interested than any Democrats were. <laughs> That's un unfortunately unsurprising. Yeah, well, that's the only kind of coalitions that make any sense. <laughs> well, I'm going to get it uh, circulated quite a bit in the California Democratic Party, but it'll be among the coalition of the willing, let's say. Um, I mean, they buy, just to make a comment, we've said over and over again on this podcast, here in California, we now have Democratic Party supermajorities in the state, and yet the policy outcomes have been disappointing. And, and by that's a very dry way of saying the needs of working people, of tenants, of the people who are really hurting have yet to be met by legislature because some of the substantial part of the Democratic folks who get elected come from, with strong corporate ties or corporate uh, alliances. And um, so that's like the next stage of the struggle here. And the, the Democratic Party that Iraq as a vice chair of the state party as a non-democratic structure uh, in itself. So those are issues. So, so you, um, you must have elected committees. We do. And, and to put it, uh, just like put an asterisk on what Dick said, or to make it nationally relevant, like the democratic party of California is far more small D democratic and participatory than a lot of state parties uh, in other parts of the country. But at the same time, given that it is so electorally successful and so rife with grassroots energy, constantly replenished with grassroots activism, that it is so command and control and centralized and um, kind of apolitical in a way is a problem. Like it's, it hasn't caught up with itself in that sense. But it's, it's, uh, there are a lot more opportunities, I think, for activist input in California than in other states. I mean, one of the things that my research group visiting the eight counties has done is we've tried to talk to state party chairs on both sides, by the way, mm. and, and, and county party chairs on both sides. And it's just enormous variety out there. I yeah. really, um, and, and, and it probably has to be to some degree, but you probably saw the piece that uh, Stacey Abrams and uh, what's the woman's name? Yeah, yeah, we did see that. Yeah, that they did in the Times, and they make a passionate argument for um, building and revitalizing a local and state party. And, um, you know, I'm working right now as a scholar on a project comparing North Carolina and Georgia and the racial justice movements that both of them had, because, you know, you had Moral Mondays, you had River mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Moral Mondays in North Carolina. And North Carolina looked like it was much more promising for um, uh, racial justice and Democratic Party power. Uh, and Georgia has proved to be the tortoise that overtakes, or at least <laughs> there. And 
you know, I think part of the difference is that Stacey Abrams and the groups network of groups she put together, which I have to understand better in an organizational way, as you can imagine, that's what I'm trying to do. Um, but they focused on on elections, on building party power, and on reforming the party itself. And I think that really made a difference. Um, it proved to be slow and steady and laid the basis for something that boy, you know, could really save the day in terms of those victories in the Georgia Senate races. That those So Georgia, our developments in Arizona, even in Texas, Wisconsin, uh, in the same period as your uh, research was going on, are kind of examples of the fruitfulness of what we're talking about here uh, and, and evidence uh, of what I think now that Jamie Harrison has been made chair of the National Party, who believes very strongly, I, I gather, in this not only organize, 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 but in the 50-state uh, uh, idea of strengthening the state parties. We interviewed on the podcast Jane Klebb, who yeah. is a strong advocate of this, a leader in the DNC of, of, of this. And so one of the things I've learned from the podcast is the most important thing for the progressive efforts to change the party is this very point. This is the point. So your work so contributes powerfully to this. By the way, that little that paper that Dorak is excited about, it concludes with an appeal to donors to join this same effort, which was a very smart thing to do because the donor class is part of the problem of, of building up the national progressive bureaucracies, right? Rather than the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. Have you seen the research that my group did on uh, comparing the Koch Network to the Democracy Alliance? Oh, no. Oh, well. You oh, that sounds that. fascinating. Yes. Yes. Well, I will send that to Dick. It's been published okay. for a while. And, um, you know, we don't just study the, the grassroots. We study the big guys, too. All the methods are different. But the only other party I would recommend that you take a look at, I think Nevada, and of course the unions are very important there. Um, we all need to understand more about what's happened in Georgia. Wisconsin, I think we know that some very good things have happened there. Maine, take a look at Maine. The intertwining of kind of grassroots-oriented, face-to-face progressive politics with changes in the Democratic Party's capacities right down to the county level has been central to, to flipping that state. The state is completely flipped uh, for now. And the only other thing I wanna say at this point, it's not just that a civic organizing style alongside the party strengthens the left. In some places it's going to strengthen people who are more moderate. And I think Democrats need to get over it, thinking that you have to choose. The opportunity structure Democrats face is not the same as the right. We have to bridge very different life worlds, very different kinds of states. And we've got to find a way to not get all freaked out if Connor Lamb doesn't sign on to the full range of left progressive wish lists um, because we got to have Pennsylvania along with California and Massachusetts or we're not going to win and hold 
national power. Right. So suppose I said in, in sort of tandem to that, that one of the goals in reforming the party is to enable it to be a center of debate on policy issues rather than simply which side is winning. I mean, the whole media presentation now is, will the left push this? And will, yeah, when in fact, true. the way I would frame it is what is needed in America to save the country and actually the planet? What kind of policies do we need to have? And let's, let's have real debate the parties, you know, in Europe, apparently are more of a debating framework for policy than, than uh, you know, our parties have been. But wouldn't that be some way of the focus on a debate rather than uh, simply a battle? I mean, the battles have to happen, too. But the debate may be uh, format or, or framing may be a way of achieving what you're talking about is recognizing uh, where and when and what issues constitute the central ones that could be uh, consensual or help coalitions to build. I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Well, I think it does. I mean, I think that we have to be careful that we don't think it's a college seminar because it, it, it isn't. Uh, it's, it's and, and a lot of politics is about uh, what are the things we should address not just what is the policy. I'm relatively optimistic right now. I mean, I think there's a lot of working out and working together. We do know from all of social science that doing things together, a common task, um, is the way you bring disparate strands together. So that's what happened, actually. Trump has been really good at bringing uh, the center left together in the United States. And some people say, well, now he's gone. Will they hold together? Well, he's not gone. <laughs> I mean, anybody who thinks that this uh, proto-fascist ethno-nationalism, and I say that, you know, <laughs> without being insulting to the grassroots people I know on the right, this is a scary, scary movement on the right. <laughs> and it's going nowhere. And it has a lot of built-in advantages in the Electoral College and the Senate and for that matter, the House, it could easily come back to power. And if it does, I mean, my goodness. So I think people do understand that. And so if you can agree that you want to make sure you don't allow health care to be turned into a purely market thing and you want to extend coverage and access to more people, well, you can probably come up with some compromises between Medicare for all and um, a strong public option and Medicaid expansion, which in fact, I think, has done. And you can get behind that and you can probably take advantage of this moment to actually put it into law. So I, I actually think that finding a way to articulate what we're trying to do, talk about what we ways we prefer to do it, and then find a way to, to get a both and rather than an either or. The media is not helpful. And, you know, just turn off MSNBC. I mean, I know I watch it every night, but really, I mean, they're going to portray it as Sanders versus Clinton, right? Yeah, because that's a narrative that they latched onto and they can just, you know, paint everything with and have it sound clever. And it isn't even very relevant. I mean, at least in my research, I didn't find much of that at all. Um, I mean, some, but... But there are differences, right? I mean, I think what... One of the things I like about Dick's emphasis on this, like making debate, normalizing debate more is, you know, can't we have 
differences of opinion within the Democratic Party that are not either portrayed as good and evil battles or life or death or the soul of the yes. Democratic Party, et cetera. And that's what makes, you know, that's where I really like the work of people like Nancy Rosenblum and others who are saying, like, let's not think about parties only as electoral machines, as, as mm -hmm. like strategic alliances of politicians to get votes. They are that. But they're also a participatory space. And the people want to yeah. come and participate. One of the things they want to do is talk about politics, talk about policy. And right. They might like to have a forum yeah. where you had several different perspectives presented. Now, that does mean that left Democrats have to not instantly dismiss people who take capitalism seriously as something that needs to be. Agreed. I mean, I'm sure we all know this. I mean, I like to talk to people in, in uh, sports metaphors because, as you probably know, I'm a big football fan. And <laughs> mm -hmm. it's really... Um, regulated capitalism versus unregulated capitalism that's on the table here. Well, uh, Dirac and I, if we, uh, when we conclude the current series of our podcast on the Democratic Party, our next discussion for the next series will be on what is socialism anyway? <laughs> well, I mean, it's an interesting, you know. Most of the people talking about it have no idea. We in the new left early days abandoned the term. <laughs> Uh, what's the value of having it? Is it I think it's it's an interesting question. Anyway, uh, I, I just one other point I wanted to make for our, uh, our listeners, which is uh, Duraka mentioned that you've written this uh, deep analysis very recently now on the American Prospect, or will be published the American Prospect on the. Oh, no, they they published it. And anyway, it's about indivisible, which we've alluded to a deep analysis that really is. A, a case study of how to think about going forward in terms of uh, building up the grassroots and the local and, and, the, and the federation of the local rather than the, the national progressive advocacy bureaucracies that have been the, the forefront of defining what the progressive side has been. And um, they are getting responses from other people in Indivisible and alongside it and so forth. So they're, they're aiming at using that article as a real forum for this kind of discussion. Um, I'm finding all of this very exciting. Uh, it goes, it, it's a new, to me, a new way of looking at all of the struggle that we're talking about. Uh, that is the new way being the creation of a party framework that can relate to the grassroots, that can relate to the uh, community-based movements that have developed intertwine, that's your term. Uh, the intertwining movement is what we're talking about here. Uh, and how that's not easily defined in, in concrete terms necessarily. And we, Barack and I had a big argument with each other about this just the other day, <laughs> but uh, in California, but it's, uh, uh, it's a much more fruitful argument than some, some of the ones that we've had to live through. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, uh, of course, an honor for both of us to have the time with you that you've spent on a Sunday. And uh, we will both be joining the Scholars Strategy Network. Yeah, I'll send you the information about that, please. And um, we will be encouraging our friends and listeners to pay much more attention than they may have to uh, this topic that we're talking about and your work and your leadership in all these matters. Do you have a final word, Theta, for America? 
You know, one of the things that's really nice about the Indivisible article is that um, we've already been contacted by sets of local groups that are discussing it and that want to talk about. Now, when that happens, um, and I'll try to maintain that stance when I get to rejoin to this forum that Bob is putting together, I think the scholar's role, and I take my role as a scholar very seriously. I'm a ruthlessly objective researcher, uh, in case you haven't noticed. Um, That's a frightening thing to think about, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you can be, I think, I think, Dick, you must have read Max Weber in graduate school. <laughs> Even Dorotha did. Because you can be a, a, a very tough-minded, objective scholar and at the same time have value commitments. And, you know, even when I'm doing my field work, I literally explain that to people left and right that I talk to. I say, you know, I, I'm here to hear what you have to say and to understand it in as objective and fair a way as I possibly can. And that's why I'm so grateful to you for talking with me. Um, I'm also a citizen. And when I go into the heartland of America, I describe myself as a New Deal Democrat, if anybody asks, because people can relate to that. It's it's a way of saying I'm a social Democrat, but if you know, I don't use terms that are gonna cause people to faint. Uh, so anyway, back to the point. The point is, it's really, I think, the role of something like this to say, well, here are some of the considerations you want to think about. And if you would like to find a way to build middle tiers that kind of bridge between the necessary national actors and the necessary local actors, then here are some ways to think about doing it that are not just romantic reinventions of the 19th century, but actually speak to our current conditions. And I find that people will come up with their own ideas and uh, often quite creatively. So I'm optimistic about that. I, I, I wish the young leaders of Indivisible would engage the discussion, the national leaders. And it is discouraging to me that they do not want to, but um, so what? It'll go on anyway. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's, and that to me is a really great place to end too, because the empiricism of your work, I, I don't want to get stuck in the uh, rabbit hole of, about objectivity, but you know, the fact that you go out and do this like rigorous learning about what's actually happening and talking to people is so important. And I think one of the discoveries you've made is how much creativity and democracy and innovation goes on among grassroots activists. And and I, I think we should all be learning from it rather than ignoring it. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much. Hang in there and be well. You too. Well, folks, thanks for listening to Talking Strategy, Making History. We'd love to have your comments. We'd love to have your support. Go to patreon.com slash TSMH if you want to interact with us and to give us a token contribution to keep us going. And thanks, too, to Para Hole, who's our intrepid producer, and Riley Brimser, our excellent engineer and editor. See you next time. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will.